Well, we are on lesson nine, so we're on page 59, what we teach about the Holy Spirit. Now, theologians will call this topic pneumatology. They have to throw in a Greek word there, right? Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. Actually, in both Greek and Hebrew, the words for spirit, referring to God's spirit, are really the same word as uh, wind and uh, breath. So uh, you can see the connection with the Holy Spirit when Scripture says that all Scripture is God-breathed, it's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, to breathe in to the... um, revelation that God is bringing to us um, uh, by his miraculous uh, supernatural uh, ability. Okay, so pneumatology, there's a good word for you. So um, I think I don't have to be, well, first of all, um, you know, at the, last, at the end of the last quarter, uh, we studied the attributes of God and we talked about um, God the Father specifically. <clears throat> and then, so far in this quarter, we have focused on theology related to Jesus Christ, which, by the way, the theological term is called Christology. Christology. Now, that's not too hard to imagine, right? Christology. So today we're moving into pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. And I I think it wouldn't be too inaccurate to say that there's a lot of misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit, who he is, what he does, um, and how we relate to the Holy Spirit And so it's helpful for us to see what Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. So first of all, uh, we're on page 59, the Holy Spirit's deity and personality. Uh, The first point there, the Holy Spirit possesses all the attributes of personality and deity. He is co-equal and consubstantial and co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and is underived. Well, as usual, there's a lot packed into that. First of all, um, sometimes people get tripped up on the idea that the Holy Spirit is a person. They think, wait a minute, I'm a person. Well, yeah, um, we use the word person to refer to people, but why are people persons? Because we're created in God's image. God has eternally existed in three persons, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And as persons within the Godhead, that doesn't mean that they're people. It means that people are created in God's image. We are persons. We have personality because we're created in God's image. God has personality. What are some of the the characteristics of personality? Temperament, 
So that's something that could be individual personality. But I'm thinking, in general, to have personality means you have, you mentioned emotion. Yes. That's part of why intellect, intellect, emotion, or intellect, yeah, emotion and will are all packed into the concept of having personality. Something else? Wishes, desires. Okay. Conscience. Okay, good, good. Think of that as, um, well, they're all wrapped together. It's hard to put a fine line between like the heart, the conscience, the, 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 the will, desires. Um, but I think a major category that we haven't talked about is having spiritual capacity, the ability to have relationship with God. Uh, God is spirit. He's created us in his image. We're not spirit, but we have a spirit, right? Our immaterial part is this spiritual capacity, dimension, eternal in the sense that it's, um, uh, it never ends from the point of beginning. God, of course, n- never had a beginning or an end. We don't have an end. Um, it's going to be either eternity apart from God or eternity with God, right? And uh, that's in contrast with, say, animals, right? Where uh, they may have, you know, your, your pet, you may be able to identify some things we might call personality in your pet, but they don't have... Um, a moral dimension to them, right? They, they may be able to choose some things, but it's more by instinct rather than by, by um, reason. And um, so the Holy Spirit has all three. Uh, well, of course, he's spirit, but he has intellect, emotion, will, and we're going to talk about that here. Uh, but before we do... Um, it uses the term consubstantial. You probably haven't used that recently in your in your vocabulary. What do you think it means? Consubstantial. Sorry. Of one being. One substance, literally, right? But what does it mean to have? If you're God, what what is substance? If He's Spirit, right? It's the the essence. Really, it's, it's what makes God, God, all the attributes. Um, uh, we are not of the substance of God. We are made in his image um, in the sense that we have that capacity to have relationship with him. Um, but yeah, the, the con means with, right, and the substance, it's, it's the same <coughs> substance. There's, there's nothing to distinguish in their essence, between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. And we've talked about this before. It's hard for us as human beings, as created beings, to get our minds wrapped around that, what that really means. But we see what Scripture says, and so we stick with that. Right? Um, so, same substance. He's not, he's not um, different. Um, in his essence. 
Co-eternal, we know what that means. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all uh, had no beginning. Eternal, uh, past, eternal, going forward. Um, uh, yes? Um, it would be maybe apt to say that God isn't schizophrenic, that he doesn't change the personality between those three. He's not switching between them. Yes. But, but that they all coexist. Right. So it's um, God is not existing in different modes and different mindsets or, or, or times of periods of time or whatever. Um, yeah, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, coexisting eternally, distinctly, and um, we can kind of visualize God the Son. You know, He came took on flesh, and we kind of understand that to an extent, although how God could take on human flesh, okay, God can do it, I guess. Um, there's enough to figure out in the life of Christ and how he has a human nature and a divine nature simultaneously. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. But we can kind of picture that because Christ actually lived as a human being. We, we see how he how he uh, revealed God in his life, and so on. The Holy Spirit's a bit more, um, or let me say, a bit less clear for most people, because who can see the Holy Spirit, right? And uh, we see, like Jesus said, uh, you, you don't see the wind, but you see the effects of the wind, right? And he likened that to the Spirit, of course. Um, but it says uh, underived. What does that mean? He wasn't created. He wasn't created. Never had a beginning. He um, um, you know, we are derived, right? God created us, and and uh, uh, part of that creation is procreation, and we are derived sort of in the first instance from our parents, but ultimately we're created by God, and. The Holy Spirit um, wasn't an afterthought, wasn't created. He's uh, underived. Now, as we indicated when we talked about the relationship between the Son and the Father, there's no distinction, there's no, you know, the consubstantial and, and co-eternal and, and so on, but there is hierarchy within the Godhead. And so we, we saw how Jesus made it clear that he, and Scripture makes it clear, that he submitted to the will of the Father, right? Um, and we even saw one instance where, um, uh, for example, the, the culmination of all things, uh, the, the future, uh, Jesus said... Um, uh, the, the timing of that, only the Father knows. How can that be? Well, we don't know completely, except that it's revealed to us. Right? Max, you had a... Yeah, it's important to, to understand until Jesus took on flesh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were all spirit. Yes. So, the concept that we can't understand the spirit, all three of them were spirit. 
Yeah. And so when you think of it that way, it's not as hard to think of the Holy Spirit because God the Father was the, the Spirit as well and the Son was the Spirit. Yep, definitely. Yeah. So it's a little bit easier picturing Christ because he became human. Um, but the Holy Spirit... Now, um, this... Uh, let me not get ahead of myself. Uh, that comes in our next point. But let's read some of these verses here, if we can. Go to the first one here, Genesis 1-2. Could someone read that for me? Okay, Diane. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. So we're speaking of how things were at the very beginning as God was creating the world, the uh, universe. And... The Holy Spirit was part of that. Um, we don't know exactly what his role was, but he was very active in that creation. And then look at the next oh, Who can read the next one? Second Samuel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men righteously, he who rules in the fear of God. Yeah, so this is taken from a bigger context, but you see that the main point in our context, that the Spirit of the Lord here is referred to as the God of Israel, just used interchangeably, right? Um, and what was it he was doing? Speaking, revealing, right? Uh, prophetically through you know, human beings. And what about Psalm 139, 7? You're probably familiar with this one. Who can read that for us? Where can I go from thy spirit, or where can I flee from thy presence? What does that suggest? Or actually tell, it's more than suggest. Yeah, the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Who is omnipresent? God, God alone, right? Let's go to the next one, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. This should sound familiar. Someone want to read that? Uh, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that verse is often used as a, an example of how the whole Trinity is referred to together uh, and, and working and so on. Interesting thing here, though, is says. Um, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular. It doesn't say baptizing them in the names, plural, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but name, singular. What might that suggest? It's one God. Three persons. Um, there, there's unity there. There's, you know, if you're speaking of... of um, the blessing of God in, in the context of, of baptism here, right? Um, there's no distinction. And there's unity. There's, it's the name of God, eternally existent in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Another example there in Acts 28. Well, before we get there, go to Acts 5, the very next one. But Peter said, Ananias, 
why does Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the prices of land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived the seed in your heart? You have not lied to men. So you remember the context here in the early church? It's Acts 5. Um, the apostles were gathering donations from uh, the new believers in order to help those particularly who were from out of town. They had come to Jerusalem as part of the, the Passover, and so there was like thousands of people who got saved, and they were in no hurry to go home. They wanted to, to be taught and, and so on, and, and there's a lot of um, sharing of, of uh, resources that made that possible so people could hang around longer and get discipled. But um, Ananias and Sapphira uh, brought a contribution and, and lied about the extent of that contribution. Uh, it, it wasn't the amount that was the issue. It was the lying that was the issue. And, and so Peter, under the uh, uh, leading and inspiration and, and prophetic uh, voice, I guess, of the Holy Spirit, knew that they were lying. And so he challenged Ananias and said two things. Um, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And then as he finished up his expression of concern <laughs> to Ananias, he says, you have not lied to men but to God. And so what was Peter indicating there? Yeah, the Holy Spirit. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. The Holy Spirit must be God. Right. <clears throat> and in fact, he is. Also that the Holy Spirit was present in what they were doing in contrast to what the, the rest of the church was attempting to do. So it's the Holy Spirit and God are the same, but the Holy Spirit is present even in the, the things that you think are small, and he's correcting them for the sake of humanity. And that gets back to his omnipresence, yeah. right? Yeah. Cool. And then later in Acts 28, Paul said, um, the Holy Spirit wrote, uh, rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, so the, uh, just the acknowledgement that one of the, uh, the key roles of the Holy Spirit was um, enabling prophecy, and particularly prophecy that became scripture, right? And that's key. Let's go down to the last one there. Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? A couple of things there. What, what, do, what do we learn about the Holy Spirit here? Eternal. Eternal. That's pretty clear. What else? He was part of the salvation plan. Yeah. His role in salvation. Right? Through the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself without blemish to God, the Father. So all three are, are involved there in the outworking of the plan of salvation. 
Cool. Okay, let's turn the page to number two. Being a person and not an impersonal power, <coughs> he, the Holy Spirit, has intellect, emotions, and will. Um, so often uh, people think of the Holy Spirit merely as the power of God rather than um, a distinct person. And yet scripture, as we'll see here, um, always refers to him with personal pronouns. He, right? Personal program, pronouns are used for persons. Now, sometimes we use them for our pets, right? He or she or did whatever, but the personal pronouns are for people, persons. So look, for example, at the verses in uh, John that are in bold there, the memory verses. But when he... This is Jesus speaking. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, Jesus is making it clear who he's talking about, right? He, the spirit of truth, comes. He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. And then the next verse, He shall glorify me, Jesus says, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. So there's a lot of truth built into those verses about the role of the Holy Spirit, what he was coming to do. Um, but they make clear that um, Jesus is referring to him as a person, not an it. One of my pet peeves is when people refer to the Holy Spirit as it. <laughs> So if I catch you doing that, <laughs> um, but also specifically, it speaks of his having intellect and will in these roles that he has, right, as part of his being a person. Okay, let's go down, close to the bottom, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. Could someone read that for me? Raise your hand if you'd like to volunteer. Okay, Glenn. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. <clears throat> but who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man, which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. So what, as what aspect of personhood, personality, does this address? His omniscience? Well, at least his intellect, his personhood, right? He has intellect. He has knowledge and understanding, and uh, he knows things that are even beyond what we can know. But for, for our context, in terms of his personhood, it has to do with his intellect. What about the next one, 1 Corinthians 12, 11? Uh, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing each one individually, just as He wills. And so what is it, do you remember from the context here, what He's referring to, gifts. being distributed? Yeah, spiritual gifts, right? And so for our context here today, what have we learned about the Holy Spirit? He has a will. He chooses 
right? The spiritual gifts that God gives us um, are his choice. And he sovereignly and uh, omnisciently uh, has reason behind that. Now, it might not be clear to us, but um, it's his choice. And it, it allows the, the, the fact that we have um, a multiplicity of spiritual gifts within the church means that um, we need each other. Um, not just because we need some people with this gift and some people with that gift to do different things in the church, but we need each other because pretty much all those things that are active now, all those spiritual gifts, are things we're all commanded to do anyway. And so we need each other to grow so that we can be, those who have the gift of evangelism can help us uh, become better evangelists. Those who have the gift of mercy can help us to grow in being merciful to others, right? We need each other by God's design. And uh, he's got intellect, he's got will. How about Ephesians 4.30? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were saved for the day of redemption. What does that uh, relate to? He has emotion. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, how can we grieve the Holy Spirit? Sinning. Sinning? What kind of sin? Just about any. (laughs) I'm thinking of sins of commission, mostly. Which are what? We're doing the wrong thing. We're willful. We're, We're... what we do is, is, is wrong, and, and that grieves the Holy Spirit, and he's likely to be convicting us, <laughs> right, that um, that was sinful. Uh, what's the other category of sin? Omission. omission. Now, if we commit a sin of omission, what's that likely to do? How's the Holy Spirit likely to respond to that? Try to teach us. Teach us? Okay. Um, I I phrase that in terms of what the Holy Spirit would do, how he would respond. I guess what I'm thinking of is the verse that says uh, we should command that we should not quench the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do the right thing, and we don't do it. We're quenching the Holy Spirit, right? Um, And so... Those are some examples of, you know, God has emotion. We have emotion because God does. Can you think of any other emotions we attribute to God? We see from Scripture? Jealousy. Jealousy. Anger. Anger. Wrath. God is love. Yeah, most people say love. (laughs) (laughs) So God created us in his image. Is it wrong to be emotional? No. No. Can emotions be good? Yes. Can emotions be bad? Yes. Of course. But inherently, we have emotions because God has emotions. 
Now, do we ever sin in our emotions? Yeah. Does God ever sin in his emotions? No. no. Big difference. And so we don't want to ascribe to God a motive that we would have had if we had that emotion. Like wrath? What are we usually thinking of when we think of wrath, when we do it? Discipline. When we do it? When we do it. Well, what's our motive? What? Maybe revenge. Oh. It's usually selfish. Yeah. Out of control. Out of control. Yeah. No self-control. Uh, when it really comes down to it, it's selfish. And being selfish is not something that um, that we. Um, you know, when we're selfish, thinking only about ourselves, that always leads to problems. Right. In fact, that's basically what sin is. It's, it's putting ourselves ahead of God and, and so on. Um, just like when we think of God being sovereign, it's not having to do with his emotions, but if a human being were sovereign, the way God is sovereign, take cover. <laughs> right? Because um, a sinful person with that unrestrained sovereignty is not a good mixture. It's always going to lead to, to uh, problems. But in God's hands, God is sovereign. That's actually a good thing. We should take comfort in that. Why? Because everything he does is good, right, and even in his sovereignty. Yeah, Glenn. Um, the idea of selfishness, interestingly, God is selfish. That's where the jealousy comes from. Yeah. But when we're selfish, we're putting ourselves as God. Yes. So we're saying, I'm God. And that was, of course, the original sin. So God, he can be selfish or jealous in that regard because he is God. And he can demand worship. Right. We cannot demand worship. Right. Right. We're not worthy. Yeah. Same thing. Good point. Okay. So, let's go to page, one, uh, page 61 the Holy Spirit's general role. We're going to talk about some specific roles, but let's talk here first about the general role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to execute the divine will with relation to mankind. Thus, the Holy Spirit sovereignly acted in creation. We read that already, right? Also sovereignly acted in the, car the incarnation What's the incarnation? Birth. Conception. Jesus taking on flesh. The carn in incarnation means flesh. Incarnation taking on flesh uh, that Jesus did. So he was... How do we know that the Holy Spirit was involved in the incarnation? It says it he overshadowed Mary. Yeah, it was very specifically said. It was an act of the Holy Spirit to do this miraculous thing that only God could do. It's something reserved for the Holy Spirit in his role. And in inspiring the written revelation. And we've even touched on that already. Um, all right, so we mentioned incarnation. Go down to Luke 1.35, halfway down this box there. Could someone read that? So, um, 
we don't understand that because it's a work of God that uh, it's beyond our ability to comprehend. But he's revealed enough to us that the um, conception in Mary's womb um, was something that only God could do because there was no human father. But the fact that he did it as a conception, and then from that point on, he developed in the womb just like we did and, and, and so on, we can understand it. But it's pretty much like every miracle. We can kind of understand, okay, um, God spoke and there was light. He spoke and the, the, the land emerged separate from the waters. He just spoke it into existence. All right, we can picture that, but we don't understand it. That's not anywhere in our experience. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. And that's one reason God had to reveal it to us. He revealed to us as much as we need to know. Um, but it's not for us to know the mechanics of how he did what he did. Right? He's God. And likewise with what the Holy Spirit does here. Let's go down to the last verse in this box. Second uh, Peter 1. Someone read that for us. Okay, Jester. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever made, has ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay, so what was the Holy Spirit's role according to this? Interpretation. Interpretation, but more fundamentally, inspiration. even inspiration. Mm-hmm. So um, men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So God's revealing, God the Holy Spirit is revealing what needs to be revealed through a human agency, prophets and, and so on. Um, and so he's involved in creation, the incarnation, inspiration. And uh, that word, inspiration, yeah. what's in the middle of it? The spirit. It's, remember I, I, I referred back to the um, the verse that said, all scripture is God-breathed, inspired. Yeah. It's breathed, God breathes into, with his breath, the Holy Spirit, what needed to be revealed. Inspiration. Um, when someone expires, what, when we call when we say someone expired, what does that mean? They breathe their last, the spirit leaves, that's expiring. Inspiring is the spirit coming in to the written word of God. Okay, cool. The word, the word for spirit is also the word for breathe and the word for wind. Um, and so that, that term, all scripture is God breathes, inspired, that, that word inspired means 
um, God-breathed, and, and it has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to communicate what God wanted revealed. Yeah. You know, we use the word inspired pretty loosely for other things, right? Um, this is a rather technical meaning and uh, the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, you might say, well, I was inspired to do such and such, and it was just, I had the desire to do it, really. Um, but in this sense, uh, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is something that only God could do. Okay, let's go down to number two here on page 61. The Holy Spirit sovereignly acts today in the work of salvation. We've already touched on that a bit. <clears throat> he, draws, <clears throat> he draws man to Christ, <clears throat> convicts him of his sin, regenerates man, seals him for eternity, and then sanctifies him. So there's a lot that goes on in the work of salvation that uh, the Holy Spirit specializes in. So could someone read for me uh, the first passage there, John 3? Yeah. So Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel... And I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, we use the term regeneration. What does regeneration mean? To be made new. Yeah, the gen there is like Genesis, beginning. <clears throat> um, re means what? Again. To be born again, basically. And um, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to make that possible. And again, you can't see him, but you see the effects of his work, just like the wind or breath. Now, sometimes you can see your breath, right, if it's cold enough out there. <laughs> um, Let's go to the second one here, John 16, 7 through 11. Can someone read that? Okay, Diane. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So what's the role of the Holy Spirit here, in a nutshell? Convicting of sin. Um, <clears throat> that's necessary, and it's a, it's a part of um, salvation, uh, justification, becoming a Christian, but does it, Stop there? No. What else happens? Of righteousness. Yeah. So, um, we referred to it earlier. You know, when, when we know what the Holy Spirit is prompting us to do, what's right, and we don't do it, what happens? We're quenching the Holy Spirit. 
And how does he respond? Conviction. Judgment sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So, usually, I don't know if this has been your experience, but usually the seems that the Holy Spirit, when he convicts us, it can often start as a gentle reminder. <laughs> and then if we're, if we're not responding well to that reminder, that gentle reminder can become um, a two-by-four in the back of the head. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so why does he do that? Because we need it. He's jealous for us. He's, okay, elaborate on that. Um, because he knows what is good for us, so he will do what is necessary to keep us from sin, because sin is bad for us. Yeah. So we're going to talk about sanctification in more detail later. But what is sanctification? We'll start with that. Getting hit with a two-by-four. Getting hit with a two-by-four. Well, no. Um, that may be what helps us along the way, but what is the point of sanctification? What does it actually mean? Conformity to Christ. Literally, what's the sanct in sanctification? Holiness. Right? It's the Latin word for holy, like inner sanctum, uh, sanctuary, um, Sanctification, you can think of as holification. Right? We're becoming more and more holy. Now, and we're going to, when we get to sanctification, I forget if it's, um, no, it's next quarter. It's not even going to be this quarter. Um, so I can give you a preview. There are two, Scripture speaks of two aspects of sanctification. Usually, when we think of sanctification, we think of this process, right? Holification, becoming more and more holy. Scripture also indicates and uses the term sanctification to refer to something that's a done deal. It's already done. And so the idea here is that positionally, when we come to Christ, we're in Christ, we're holy. The word saint is the same background. It's the word that means what? Holy one. Someone who is separated from sin. Positionally, that's us because we're in Christ. Um, and because we're in Christ, when God looks at us, what does he see? The righteousness of Christ. Yeah. So positionally, we're holy, but our experience needs to catch up. Right, And that process, that's a process. The other sanctification is not a process, it's a done deal at the moment of salvation, justification. Um, and scripture can refer to those who have been sanctified. Do we ever end that process? When does the process of sanctification, the, the progressive sanctification end? When we go to be with the Lord. Right? We're, we're, we're no longer in this body. We're no longer subject to um, all those temptations and uh, whatever. But there is a sanctification in Scripture that, that is clearly done. 
and the work of the Holy Spirit in us in the meantime is to help our experience conform to our position. We become more and more like Christ. That's what we call progressive sanctification. Um, and a large part of that is his role of convicting us. What happens when he convicts us of sin? What, well, start with this way. What should happen when he convicts us of sin? We respond rightly. We respond rightly. Uh, what was that, Grace, you said? We stop sinning. So stop one response is um, we, we shed the sin. We, we forsake the sin. What's that called? Repentance. Repentance. Forsaking the sin out of a pure heart. Yes, Lord, you, um, you got me. You're right. I agree with you. And because of that, I'm going to forsake that. I'm not just admitting it and going on doing it again. At least that's not my heart's desire. But a genuine repentance is, is turning away from that to what? Righteousness. To righteousness, doing the right thing. So, you see what's happening? He convicts us of a sin, we respond to it rightly, and we turn from it. The more and more we're forsaking sin, who are we becoming like? Christ, right? So if he weren't convicting us, that would be an indication that he doesn't care about our becoming Christ-like. We're not his. We're not his, right? So think about this. And maybe you can remember. Um, I'm, I can't remember. I'm too old. <laughs> but you might be able to remember um, doing a certain thing that was clearly sinful and it didn't bother you at a bit before you were a Christian. After you're a Christian, you do the very same thing, what happens? Conviction. Conviction. And it, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to know that it was sin, but it's the response in you because you are saved and because he is convicting you, he's not going to leave you alone. He's going to help you become more like Christ. So as we forsake the sin and we latch on to Christ and commit ourselves to righteousness, which is doing the right thing, for the right reason, we become more like Christ. That's sanctification. Yes. Yes, so he indwells us. We're going to talk about that. Um, it might be next week. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And so that's an indication. That should be good news to you. It may... It may, at the time when that conviction happens, be a, an, it may be an unpleasant thing to face reality, but he does that because he loves us. And he's committed to our becoming Christ-like. Um, and that process of taking the likes of us and making us more Christ-like is something that glorifies God. Pretty cool. That's a, ro a role of the Holy Spirit. Um, by the way, I don't know if it helps you at all, but it says when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. That's what's wrong. Concerning righteousness, that's the opposite. What's right to do. 
and judgment. Why would there be judgment? Because the sin we're, he's, we're convicting us of and the righteousness that we should have been doing brings us under judgment. Right? We're facing God's judgment because the Holy Spirit makes it clear to us that what our lives are sinful, they don't measure up to the righteousness of God, we're under the judgment of God. The Holy Spirit does that to convict us of those truths. And the context here is mostly in the, at the moment of salvation. He grabs a hold of us and makes sure that we understand sin, righteousness, and judgment leads us into the correct response. Okay. Very important aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Let's flip the page 262, go down to 2 Corinthians 122. Uh, it's part of a larger sentence, but it's referring to uh, a ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, who also sealed us and gave us the Holy Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. And if you go down to Ephesians 1.13, skip down. Uh, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we're sealed in Christ. We're, we're placed into Christ, and it's, it's a done deal. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to seal us. So if we weren't... Well, um, what do you think that seal indicates? Eternal security. Yeah. We're saved. We're in Christ. Uh, it's not a question of whether we're hanging on to him, <laughs> but he's told us that he's hanging on to us. Yeah. And no one can snatch us out of his hand. So he has sealed us. It's like um, you could picture, maybe you've done this, it used to be that people would put uh, wax on the bottom on a, on a envelope, you know, and they put their seal on it, and if that seal's broken, then you know somebody's opened the letter, right? Uh, the seal of the Roman government was put on the tomb of Christ, so that if that were broken, then you know what? Someone broke in. Well, that's what they thought. It's also possible for someone to break out. <laughs> but he didn't need that, as it turns out. Um, it was more for us to look in, because he in his glorified body, didn't need that stone to be rolled away to, to come out. Anyway, um, so the seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit is our assurance. In um, the first passage, 2 Corinthians one twenty two, gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. That pledge there is like a down payment. This is a, a down payment on... Um, our eternal state, our eternal um, inheritance. We've got a taste of that now with the Holy Spirit being resident in our lives, and he has sealed us in Christ. Okay, um, let's go to the verse between those, uh, looking at Galatians. I've got a few minutes here. Uh, but I say, walk by the Spirit... He's referring to the Holy Spirit here, walking by the Holy Spirit, 
and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Watch out for the things like these. They're not even listed. Uh, of which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So there's a lot there about sanctification, holification. Um, and by the way, this is a day for pet peeves. Another one of my pet peeves is when people refer to the fruits of the Spirit, plural. What does the verse say? The fruit of the Spirit. What does it mean, fruit, first of all? It doesn't mean yummy, little physical evidence of physical evidence it's the result of the work of the spirit in our lives the result of his work is love joy peace patience and so the fact that it's singular what does that suggest it's all of them it's a package deal why is it a package deal all from one source all from one source there's that and they're kind of like um intercomplementary complimentary because you, like you can't be filled with peace and be angry or like be wrathful to people you can't really be full of kindness but also be just doing all this terrible stuff they're kind of, they're kind of you kind of need all of them together they are complimentary it's all god's character it's yeah. god's character yeah. what the holy spirit produces in us is godliness and that's a package deal you can't say Oh, I don't have the fruit of patience. <laughs> you can say, the Holy Spirit's helping me to become more patient. <laughs> right? Um, the other way to think about this, you know, it's God's character that are listed here. And these are, I, I don't take that to be um, necessarily an exhaustive list when we think of godliness these are the things that come to mind, but they begin with love, the right kind of love, and they end with self-control, and everything in between is an example of loving self-control, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. It's God's character. And the irony and the shame, obviously, is um, Satan tempted Eve with the possibility that if she eats that fruit, she's going to be like God. And, of course, that's what Satan wanted to do. He wanted to take over as God. The irony is that God wants us to be like God, but in his, what, kind of attributes? 
communicable attributes. They're kind of attributes like this that are God's character, not the attributes of God that are reserved only for God, like omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, um, all the omnis and sovereignty and, and those kind of things. Uh, he gives us a measure of sovereignty, delegated, but um, I wish he'd give us a measure of omniscience. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but in these attributes, he wants us to be like him. And as it often is, Satan twists the word of God when really God does want us to be like him in these moral characters, qualities. Okay, the last verse there, Titus 3.5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not our righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So he's very much involved in regeneration, our being born again. Right? Okay, five minutes. Let's go to the application questions on page 63. What evidence do you have that the Holy Spirit has been at work in your life? What are some things that we can point to? Conviction of sin. The desire to obey God. Desire to be, obey God. That does not come naturally. <laughs> right? What else? Desire to love others. Yeah. To display God's character. Or sacrificially love others. And that it's not just the outward show of that, but it's the inward motivation, right? He's working on our heart so that those, those good things we should be doing, we're doing from the right heart, not from a hypocritical or selfish heart, right? Anything else? Any other evidences of the Holy Spirit's working in us? Yeah, a hunger for his word. You know, that's usually one of the first things you see with a new believer, that there's genuine. They're just hungry now for God's word, which was not the case before. They might have been maybe searching and whatever, but now they're, it's a voracious appetite. Like, like newborn babes long for the pure myth of the word of God, right? Then also kind of paired with that is just the joy, when, especially when new believers are like first learning stuff. My dad has a story, he got saved when he was 17, he has a story about like, he was reading, he was the first person in his family to get saved, so he was reading his Bible and realized, Jesus is God. And he was just like running through his high school, just telling everybody, this is so amazing, this is, this is so cool, and just like not even realizing this is basic knowledge. But that joy that comes with even learning basic facts about God. Sure. Excellent. Good, yeah. And kind of similar to that, you grow in love for God? A love for God, rather than what were we like before? Loving ourselves, which means hating God, essentially, right? Yeah. And increasingly bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in our life, right? Some of the things you've already mentioned. Uh, another one is um, related to all this, but assurance of salvation. Uh, the Holy Spirit... Um, What's Roman eight say? Um, he, testifies. yeah, but but he he um, test right testifies with our spirit that we are truly born of God. Right. Okay. Last question. What should you do in your Bible study 
that recognizes the Holy Spirit's authorship of Scripture. Taking it seriously, I just saw a clip earlier of somebody saying, and you'll notice that I didn't read this section of First Corinthians, because that section is just kind of yikes. This is God's word. Don't, don't pick and choose. Okay, so approach it with respect, Reverence. because it's God's word. Yeah, so he spoke through human language, and he spoke it in a particular way, um, not overlooking the, the personalities of the human authors and their historical context and everything, but the words matter. Yeah, and so we need to pay attention to the words. Anything else? Yeah, prayer. Approaching God's word ought to be um, a, a spiritual exercise, a spiritual discipline on our part, um, where we would begin by asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to his truth. Um, theologians call that illumination. It's like he turns the light on so we can see what's already there and uh, respond appropriately. Yes. Yeah, you bring up an excellent point. We're going to get to that one in a week or two. Yes, Ephesians 5.18. We're actually commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means. But in, in answer to this question, um, the Holy Spirit inspired scripture he's the divine author and so we should approach our study of the scripture uh, submitting to him being um, uh, dependent on his teaching us through the words of scripture we're not under the law well that's um, just real quick of course uh, it's referring to the Old Testament law and uh, the purpose of the Old Testament law was to um, highlight the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And because of the sinfulness of man, there needed to be a blood sacrifice. And the repeated nature of the Old Testament sacrificial system should have convinced people, and it, it did convince some, I'm sure, that the animal blood wasn't, wasn't accomplishing it. It was only a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that was to come, which of course is Jesus. But people were obliged to keep that law, first for their own benefit, second to acknowledge what God was doing through this to, to illustrate his holiness and, and our need to submit to him. Yeah, the Ten Commandments are part of the law. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have enough time. We need to get to the worship service. But um, I think the point you're saying is we're not under the law now. We're under the grace of God in Christ. 
And it's, it's always been true that salvation has been by grace through faith. Uh, the advantage that we have is we're looking back at the sacrifice of Christ, whereas others before him had to look ahead in faith. Um, yeah, there's so much there. Maybe another day. Max, you want to wrap it up? Rex. Rex, I'm sorry. Real quick. We're not under ceremonial law, but we've always been under moral law. We're yeah. still under moral law. That's yeah. what people... Because right. that is that is repeated in the New Testament. Yeah. So that portion of the law we're still under. Right. Yeah. I just want to add that we're no, we're no longer under the law's punishment because we've been covered by Christ's blood. Yes. Yeah. He's our substitute. Right. And we're no longer slaves of sin, but we're freed from sin and slaves of God. Let's pray.